You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Merry Christmas. It's almost here. Can you believe it? Man, it has come back really quick. Well, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up, and John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to wrap up uh, our section in the kind of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. So we will be in the Gospel of John for a good time. It could be a couple years. I'll pick back up in, this, uh, in the section of Gospel of John uh, in the new year. So we're about to take a break from the series uh, in the Gospel of John, but we're going to have a great time this week. We got a bunch of Christmas services, and then I'm preaching on Sunday, <clears throat> December 26th. So um, I don't know what I'm preaching on yet. So uh, I've had about five ideas, and every time I get excited about it, I move into it. I'm like, no, that's not it. So uh, usually I plan out my preaching literally almost a year ahead of time, and uh, and it takes me a lot to, to do that. But for whatever reason, we'll see what happens December 26. It could just be a boom or a bust. We will see. So um, we're going to have a great time this week. God's at work within our church and uh, throughout the valley. Uh, tomorrow, I'll probably go, go down to uh, Gilbert, uh, where all the Gilbillies live. Uh, I love that place. A bunch of uh, redneck folks down there. So I'm going to hang out with the sheep rancher and going to see some of the sheep that we're going to have for this Christmas service. And I know some of you maybe came from one of those larger churches, that big church that has the gigantic Christmas festival thing where they have camels and flying angels. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen that before? Um, that's not what we've got. We don't have that budget. Uh, we're not having any flying sheep or flying camels. We'll have some live sheep, though. It'll be very fun and some real great shepherds, folks that you'll recognize. So be sure to invite your friends to that. So, hey, today we're jumping into the Gospel of John, and what we're doing is we're looking at this closing conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, and uh, uh, Jesus is kind of introducing a, a very powerful theme that the gospel of John is going to record all throughout the rest of the gospel. It was mentioned in chapter one. Here it's in chapter three. It'll be all throughout the rest of it. And it's about light and darkness. And so light in the Bible is this metaphor for what it means to live in truth, what it looks like to live as a believer. Jesus is the light, and we should be children of light. And then there's darkness, sin, evil, and darkness. And unbelievers live in the dark, walk in the dark, love the dark. And so Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus about that. And so um, before I get started, I want to tell you a story, though, about uh, darkness and the fear that it can create. How many of you, just to know you guys, how many of you would say you have been in the past or you are now, you would be afraid of the dark? Like a little bit, okay? Honest, there we go. Um, so I'll tell you a story real quick of me being pretty afraid of the dark. It wasn't that long ago. Between 2006 and 2009, I went down to Dallas, uh, at Dallas Seminary. Uh, we lived in downtown Garland, and I worked in Rockwall, Texas. And then I would jump on the train. Oftentimes, I would ride my bike, or sometimes I'd drive my car to the park and ride. I'd get on a train. It's called the Dart Rail, uh, Dallas Area Rail Transit System or whatever. I get on the dart rail, go downtown Dallas, get off, catch a bus, or sometimes walk all the way down to the seminary on Swiss Avenue in downtown Dallas. 
during exam season, it, what would happen is I would need to stay on campus late at night. I was working on two master's programs down there and trying to set a record speed and get it done in three years. So I'm down there. Um, I'm, 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 newly, I'm newly married. I've got two kids under the age of five back at home. They're in downtown Garland. I'm in downtown Dallas during exam season, probably till 10 or 11 at night. Then I'm getting on a train in downtown Dallas, headed back, and I would do this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And back then, I was one of those hardcore people that just said, we got to do whatever it takes to get this education. We sold our house in Little Rock, used as much money as we could to finance our schooling. We cut all our expenses, and I ditched a cell phone for three years in 2006 to 2009. some of you, uh, that would be like a, a blessing to you because you're addicted to your phone. It's a blessing and it's a curse. I loved it. No cell phone. So I got no communication, writing in the dark. And then I started hearing reports about these attacks of people getting robbed, mugged, and uh, beat up on the train. And so I started getting a little leery. Uh, and then so here it is about probably uh, Friday night. I'm rolling into downtown Uh, area of Garland. I noticed this guy's been following me and I know who sits on the train. When you're a a frequent traveler uh, on a trail, on our train system, you kind of know where people get off on which stops because you've memorized it. You've started to realize, I know this lady gets off here. I know this guy gets off here. And so I knew, and this one guy, I knew he shouldn't be on the train. Um, Normally. So anyway, so he's there. He just looked a little unfamiliar to me. I decided to get off one exit early to see if he would follow me. Sure enough, he gets off. I get off. He gets off. I start thinking, oh, snap. I've got a really nice MacBook. I've got a, um, a, 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 an iPod, one of the first iPods. I had one of those things. I had my earbuds in. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get mugged tonight. This is great. Pa- Pastor Ryan's going to get mugged on Friday uh, uh, on probably somewhere between downtown Garland and wherever the stop before. So I start making a plan in my head, probably uh, too uh, eager, ambitious, or I don't know, overly active. I started thinking, am I going to run or am I going to fight this guy? So I thought, well, sure. Now he's followed me off the false stop. If I get back on and he gets back on, it's definitely he's after me. So I get back on the train and I go and the guy jumps back on the train and I'm like, he's following me. So I'm thinking, great, what am I going to do? I have no cell phone. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, what do people do if, if that seem a little scary to me? And sometimes, you know, maybe you've been out there before or late at night and somebody kind of comes up out of the shadows and says, hey, you got a light? You got a cigarette? Or, hey, you got something to drink? Or, hey, you got some money? And it kind of bothers you a little bit. So I thought, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to scare him. And so... I'm getting off the train and I thought, if he follows me, I'm just going to like act like I'm nuts and I'm going to bother him and maybe I'll scare him away. So I get off the train and sure enough, this guy's following me into a dark parking lot, probably 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I feel him about four foot, three foot. And he's coming up right behind me. And I turn around, I say, hey man, you got a light? I need a cigarette right now. And he goes, ah! And he runs off. And I thought, oh my goodness, I did it. And then I thought about it. I thought, that was probably just an innocent guy. I just freaked out. (laughs) I have no idea. But what I do know is that I thought my life was in trouble. And I think it was exacerbated because it was dark. And the Bible tells us that darkness is where evil thrives. 
It should be no surprise that when you look at criminal statistics, I did it just last night to refresh my memory, the highest percentage of DUIs, uh, MIPs, drinking and driving, do you think it happens in the daytime or the nighttime? Nighttime. Nighttime. Rape, uh, robbery, uh, murder, daytime, nighttime. Nighttime. Uh, Evil loves darkness. Uh, Jesus had a very powerful metaphor, and he said, I am the light. Light is powerful. Light influences everything. It drives darkness out. Um, Not too long ago, we did a a trip, Kutchner Caverns, or however you pronounce it, and we went down into that cave, and they turned the cave, and it's completely black, and then somebody lights this little tiny light, and then you can see, you can see, you're like, wow. I can see. Um, Recently, we went to the Spider-Man film, which was a pretty good film. I don't know if you've seen it or not. So let me tell you what happens in it. Spoiler alert. Some of you are going to block your ear. I'm joking. I'm not going to tell you. But we were at the film, and, you know, they always say turn out your, you know, turn off your phones. Don't text. Don't do that. Why? Because the, the darkness, it creates a natural draw towards the light. And so what Jesus is going to do with Nicodemus is going to illustrate um, the natural, listen to me, the natural to the spiritual. And this happens all the time in the ministry of Jesus. He uses the natural world to illustrate the spiritual world. And so Nicodemus, did he meet Jesus in the daytime or the nighttime? Those of you that have been paying attention. Nighttime. He pursued Jesus in the night. Why do you think Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious ruler, very educated, one of 6,000 Pharisees in the time of Christ that were the biggest influences to the nation of Israel, why do you think he met Jesus in the night? He was probably a little bit afraid uh, of his colleagues finding out that he's meeting with the so-called Messiah. So he's meeting at night. Jesus is going to close down the conversation with Nick at night and tell him it's time to follow the light. So watch this. In John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, these are the closing words of Jesus Christ to Nicodemus. He says this, and this is the judgment. In other words, here's how it works, Nicodemus. The light has come into the world. This is it. Familiar phrase, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Nicodemus says, yes, okay. He would have understood that to mean that Jesus was telling Nicodemus, I'm the light, Nicodemus. The light has come into the world. At my birth was the beginning of a new era. And then it says, Jesus says, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, people don't want to be in the light because it exposes them. Look at the following verse in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. There's just a reality uh, in the spiritual realm. Uh, for believers and unbelievers. How many of you can remember when you were an unbeliever, meaning you did not follow Jesus Christ? Would you raise your hand for me? Raise it high. The Bible says, you can lower it. The Bible says is that you were walking in darkness. Do you remember what it was like as an unbeliever to be around other believers that were really strong in their faith? I do. I remember it was hard because I wasn't living like them. 
I didn't, my life didn't look like their life. I was ashamed of so many different things that were going on in my life. And when I was around other Christians that were strong in their faith, I felt like I'm out of place. I, I, I had questions and doubts like, what if they knew what I really was like? What if they knew the things that I did? Would they still care about me? See, when you're in the dark, you don't want to get in the light a lot of times. You don't want to be exposed. This is why I think a, a lot of even the, the issues of pornography or, or, or uh, drunkenness and drinking, you see that happen at night. You do, we don't want people to know the addiction and the, the bondage that there is. And so Jesus is drawing out these issues about what it looks like. And when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to leave the darkness and start walking in the light. So he describes the unbeliever. Let's look at what the believer looks like. Verse 21, he says, but whoever does what is true, that means the person who's a believer, Jesus is the truth. He says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, when you're a believer, you want to live in the light because you love the light, you love Jesus, and you don't care what comes to pass, what what is revealed. You just live your life in the open. You live your life clearly. You say, evaluate me, criticize me, do whatever you want. I got nothing to hide. And so I imagine Nicodemus is probably thinking, is he preaching at me? Is Is he talking about me? I'm kind of like a, a believer, secret believer, but I don't want to come to the light. I don't want to live my light in, life in public. I don't want my colleagues to know that I'm starting to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I think, is pressuring Nicodemus to come to a reality that you need to live in the light, Nicodemus. And what church history tells us is that Nicodemus actually later does. He becomes an incredible leader. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He was there um, in the uh, burial of Jesus Christ. He helped finance the funeral. Like Nicodemus does become a believer, but there is a tension point. And Jesus is calling him out. Like perhaps he's calling you out to say, walk out of this darkness, live in the light, profess my name, be a follower of me. So this is not new language in the gospel of John. If you recall in the first chapter, it says... The Apostle John writes and records this about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is Jesus. Jesus is the light of all people. He is the great light for the world. So that it may be clearly seen that, uh, I'm sorry, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a mega theme within Scripture that Jesus is the light. And there's a powerful spiritual metaphors. But now what I want to do is illustrate this powerful uh, portrayal of Jesus's light and what it looks like to be pulled out of darkness or called out of darkness and to live in his light. And we're going to look at the life of one individual. And this individual is the, um, is the very person in which we get the context of this phrase from Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus says, I am the light of the, help me out, world. Do you remember that? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do you know the context behind that? Do you recall? I'll tell you. There was a woman that was right beside him who was living in darkness. She was very irreligious, 
And all of a sudden, her life was deeply exposed. And then there was a bunch of religious people that were playing church, pretending and hiding a lot of different things. And they were living in darkness too, and they were exposed. And then Jesus says, hey, listen, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. So watch this. John chapter 8, we see the case study of Jesus interacting with a woman who's caught in adultery. Now you know. Now you know. Okay. Here's where we're going. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning and came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scene is set. Jesus is near Jerusalem. He's at the Mount of Olives. Maybe he stayed the night on the mountainside, camped out. It says early in the morning, he comes to the temple. That was his place in which he would teach. People are starting to gather. People came to him and he sat down and he started teaching them. He just started teaching them from the scriptures, illuminating their minds. People were drawn to him as people are drawn today to preachers and teachers that just teach the Bible, teach the word. They were no gimmicks, no super thrills. Jesus is just teaching, a teaching ministry. This church didn't take off until we started teaching. And so Jesus is teaching, and then look what happens. Here comes the bad guys, verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Uh, she has been discovered. She has been exposed. Uh, two times you see that they caught. She was caught. Was she caught the night before and then brought in early in the morning? Was she caught in the morning? Did they catch her, quarantine her, uh, and then bring her in the morning? I, the scripture doesn't say, but she was caught. You ever been caught doing something you shouldn't be doing? Uh, this would cost her her life. Look what it says in verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. I did look it up. Did the law of Moses command to stone such a person that would commit adultery? It did. Uh, it's the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Deuteronomy 5.18, and then Leviticus 20.10 says that if anyone commits adultery, they should be stoned to death. That is so harsh. In our country, we have a capital punishment where if you take a life, you could lose your life. Uh, Jesus affirmed the sacredness of the institution of marriage between one man and one woman in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 and talked about adultery. Uh, the consequence of adultery in marriage is condemnation, absolute condemnation. So by law, this woman is deeply guilty. But well, the problem I found with this is that in Leviticus, it says that if somebody's caught in adultery, both people need to be brought together, and then both face the consequences. But here, you have some Pharisees just dragging the woman, bringing the woman in. Where's the man? They should have brought him in too, but they don't. She's humiliated. She's embarrassed. She's distraught. She knows the law of Moses. Uh, she, at least she's been informed about it in that moment. And Jesus would have known the law of Moses. And now he's at a crossroad, and they did this to test him. 
They probably found a, a woman that was, was living a licentious lifestyle, an irreligious lifestyle, and said, mm, perfect opportunity, let's take her, let's grab her. Why didn't they grab the guy? They should have grabbed the guy. They didn't grab the guy. They bring her in. She probably couldn't fight back. They bring her in, throw her down into the temple. Jesus is standing there with his disciples, all these religious people. What do you say? The law of Moses said we should kill her. And if Jesus says, forget that, then he defies the law of Moses, doesn't fulfill prophecy because the Bible says that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So Jesus is in a testing spot. And so what does he do? I think what he does is he helps them see something they didn't see. He helps them see that they're just as guilty. Look what he does. It says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him, without sin, among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Let me pause right there. What just happened? Jesus was accused uh, uh, or, or put on the test, if you will. Is he going to fulfill the law of Moses or is he going to defy it? And then Jesus comes back to them. What does he write on the ground? Nobody fully knows, but I got some ideas. Whatever we all know, whatever he wrote on the ground was enough that the people that had the stones in their hand dropped them and walk away. But notice what it said in the text earlier that the older ones left first. I think what he wrote down on the ground were their sins. He began to expose them. Probably other commandments of the scripture uh, probably they were manipulating the situation. Maybe he was referencing Leviticus 20.10. You didn't bring the, the man in here. You just brought her. This is mistreatment. This isn't fair. And Jesus says to them, basically, if anyone's among you without any sin, you be the first to throw a stone at her. Imagine in that moment, you're that woman. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, in a moment right here, if somebody pretends and they act like they're perfect, then I'm just going to get it. But everybody knew they were imperfect. Everybody was exposed. Who was exposed in that moment? I'll tell you who was exposed. The deeply religious people that are the perfectionist. They think they've done everything right. And then the irreligious, the woman, who has done everything wrong and she knows it. She's caught. She's not only irreligious, she's licentious. She's, done, she's loose living. And so was the guy that got involved with her, but Scripture doesn't tell us what happens. Jesus bends down on the ground, it just begins to shed light on the situation that all stand guilty before the great light, Jesus Christ, and that's the, the verdict of humanity. We all have sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and here we see divine justice and mercy at play. Uh, Jesus stands up in verse 10. Look what it says. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? And that phrase, when he says, woman, where are they, is not a, a derogatory term. It's actually more of a kind and sensitive term. It would be like we say down south, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Uh, where are they? Or Mrs. Or miss. That's the phrase that Jesus uses. Uh, Jesus is face-to-face -face with a person whose their life has uh, uh, been living in the dark, and she's uh, conflicted, she's confused, 
She's discouraged. She's depressed. She's been trying to fill the, her heart with intimacy that gets her nowhere. And she gives herself away. And Jesus has exposed that. Uh, the Pharisees have exposed that. And now Jesus confronts that. Jesus stands up and says to her, woman, where are they? And then he says, has no one condemned you? She said, note what she says, no one, Lord, and Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I think what is interesting about this is to see what the woman's response is. She did not say, no one, Jesus. She did not say, no one, Rabbi. She says, no one, Lord. What is Lord? Lord is the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the one. She is saying in that moment, no one, Lord, I believe you. She accepts, I think, Jesus Christ right there as her Lord and Savior. Uh, in that moment's time, there's a transformation. The beginning work of regeneration begins to take place. And Jesus is aware of this, what's going on, this transformation. It's a perfect teaching moment for Jesus to say, you want to follow me? You leave the darkness and you walk in the light. And she's not the only one in the light. Look, but he does challenge her. He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. In other words, you don't stay in the dark. You don't live in the dark. You don't live in your old ways. You go, and you sin no more. Quit sleeping around. That's not you. You got a new life in front of you. In verse 12, it says, and again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, here it is. This is the next verse. I am the light of the world. Imagine that. That woman, she was just deeply exposed by the greatest light in all the world, Jesus Christ. Who else was exposed? The religious perfectionists. They were exposed. When they were exposed, whatever Jesus wrote down on that dirt, on that ground, they were convicted enough to drop those stones and not be so judgmental and be the first to cast a stone. They leave. Some of you are the religious perfectionists. You're just so... You can be legalistic about your faith, about others, judgmental. And the message is, is that when we spend time with Jesus Christ, we're, we get exposed. And so, and for the, uh, some of us are perhaps living a life that's licentious and irreligious. Live however, however we please. Do whatever you want. Jesus Christ, when we come into contact with him, he exposes our areas of our sin and our darkness. And we're called to live in the light, not in the dark. And this is what Jesus says. Look what he says in verse 12 following. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness. So whoever, who's there? The irreligious woman and the religious people. Were they living in the dark? All of them were. And then he says, he doesn't say, woman, you follow me and you will not walk in the darkness. He does not say, you licentious lady, you follow me. He says, whoever. Who's he talking to? He's talking to whoever was there. The deeply religious people that were trying to be perfectionist and legalistic. And he's talking to the irreligious lady too. It's a massive teaching moment. And it's a message for us as Christians that no matter where we're at, we need to know that when we start walking with Jesus, things in our life start to change. If we really yield ourselves to the power and the authority of Scripture, the scripture begins to illuminate to us how we're living and how we ought to be living. 
And we are constantly being challenged when we spend time with other believers that are stronger in our faith to go, I want to live like that. Every single one of you have some shady areas in your life that if they were to be fully exposed, you would not be proud of. And the good news is is that we can look to God's word and go, Lord, I want to walk in the dark. I want to walk in the light. I want to leave the darkness and I want to follow you. Look at this though, in closing, he says, whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Ladies and gentlemen, you have the light of life in you. You are an inspiration. You are a hope. You are a light in a dark world. The world is in darkness. Christians are the light. The light of life is in you. I thought about light and the power of light and how it can, uh, connects directly to our life on earth. The researchers say that if the sun ceased to exist, it would be just a, maybe a week or two and the entire planet would go be completely frozen over. Not a scorpion or a roach would be alive. Every person on the planet would be frozen without the sun. You are the church. You are the Christian called to be a light, what keeps, I think, this planet together at some moral fabric level is Christianity. If you think about the power and the influence of Christianity from age to age, from generation to generation, Christians are the greatest influencers of all time. And you live in a culture that is dark. You live in a culture that is becoming increasingly twisted and wicked And when you walk into the room, you need to know you can hurt people just by your presence. And sometimes that pain is necessary because light hurts. When I left that movie theater, I walk out in the light. I'm like, ah, I can't see very well. As Christians, you need to know you're called to be a light to the world, not to hurt people, but to help people. But sometimes when you bring things to, 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 to light, right, in your own life, it hurts to deal with that secret issue, to deal with that area of it that you don't want exposed. And when you help other people and you speak up and you begin to shine, you let God's word be the light to your feet, the lamp unto your path, and you let it change your life and redirect it and make the changes you need to, it will hurt, but it also really helps. You have the light of life. You are intended to shine. You remember that little, uh, nerd, the, uh, what, the Sunday school song? Help me out. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Wow. Okay. We'll stop there because I'll screw it up. You guys know that. You're going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine all the time. Don't hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. The world needs you to shine. You have, you have, you have, you have the light of life, not of death. Your destiny is to shine. Your design is to shine. Here's how, what we need to do as a church. Two things. We need to be inviting people, meaning we need to be the invitational person. We've got to help people walk out of darkness and into this marvelous light. 
So how do you do that? You just be an inviting person. Hey, you don't have a community to connect with? Connect with my community. Hey, you haven't been to church in a while? Come to my church. Hey, you don't have anybody to be with during the holidays? Come, come be with me. Hey, I would love for you to join us. Hey, would you consider making a, a, a special trip to visit me on the Christmas services? I walked into my V's barber shop yesterday and some of you are like, yes, and you look bald. And I get it. I, I do. I walked out of there and I was like, well, that was a little too short. I wasn't planning on that. My, my daughter said, dad, you were bald. Now you're really bald. <laughs> uh, I walked in there yesterday and I, was, I just love it. I talked to my buddies and um, I didn't realize, I'm sorry, I'm not like the best uh, client for the barbers because you're supposed to be loyal to one, but I'm never like that. I'm like, I got two or three people I want to sit with and talk to, you know, I'm the pastor. I want to get to know everybody's lives. So I walk in, they're like, hey, pastor, what's up? I'm like, hey, you guys coming to our services? They're like, yeah, Friday night, 7.30. I said, awesome, I'll see you. You bring in your mom? Yeah, bring in my mom, bring in my friend. Hey, let's go together. So 7.30, Friday night, those of you that be there, you'll meet my barbers, they're great. Um, so be the inviting person, though. And uh, let me give you just some statistics. I found out some kind of uh, alarming statistics. It's like some uh, 25% of young people around the world are saying they're isolated, disconnected, depressed, and on the verge of suicide. 25% of young people in all of the world. It's a global problem. People are isolated. The pandemic showed us the pain of isolation. And the church, if you notice, they're the ones that say, forget that. We're going to meet together. We're going to be together. We, we, we want our kids in school. We want to be back together. So... Nearly a quarter of young adults need to be invited. They're uh, feeling alone and isolated. What I find also ironic, it's almost like a self-problem, is 65% of young Christians say that they can walk with God and do the Christian life without any other believers. So we have fooled ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. If you're a part of that 65% that think your Christian life, you got it, you don't need other people, you've deeply misunderstood the Bible's portrayal of family and how God works. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you've been born again and you are now a child of God and then your Christian uh, friends become brothers and, help me out, sisters. And we have one father we've been adopted in through the work of Jesus Christ. This is his family business that you and I would share and show the love of Jesus Christ our common work that we do is in the service industry, we serve people. That's what we do. We shine. We love people. We go into the darkness in times, and we help people find the light of life and follow us as we go. Be inviting people. I would challenge you to do that. Nearly 30% of young Christians today leave the church saying they didn't feel connected. Invite people. We've got an entire hospitality ministry designed after this service so that you that are new should get connected. Those of you that have been around and you see a new person, invite that person to lunch. We provide lunch for free. Because this isolation is a huge issue. My father is a psychiatrist. He sees more and more people. He's the leading psychiatrist in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yes, Arkansas has PhD psychiatrists. And, <laughs> and he, though he looks like a dumb redneck, he is very educated, very smart man. And he likes the dumb redneck look. He loves it. Um, 
I'll have to tell you more stories about him another time. He's coming in January. We're going to do some quail hunting. I love my dad. But he would tell you that the greatest problem that he's seeing right now is so many, even Christians, have isolated, quarantined themselves, and bought in systematically that they do not need other people in their life. This is massively a problem. So be inviting. Number two, I would challenging you is be investment-minded. This series, the Givers series, I was thinking it might be a financial series, um, but I couldn't leave the Gospel of John. So for those of you that are like, this is kind of weird. It's a Givers series, but he's going through the Gospel of John. Like, it's kind of a disconnect. I get it. Um, I, call it I called it the Givers series. I decided, I was thinking it would be financially uh, minded at some level to teach you biblical uh, theology on like giving and tithing and offering, but then I just couldn't leave the Gospel of John. I told you it was like I was just happy to be stuck there. So I decided to retheme it under the idea that God is the greatest giver of all. Christmas is a season of giving. If God is the greatest giver and he gives light, then so should we. And so that's the logic behind it, but I want to challenge you Because the fruit that you want to see will not necessarily be today, but it could be tomorrow. And the impact that we want to have may not be this year, but it might be in the years to come. I do believe fundamentally and foundationally that the greatest years of North Valley are yet to come. And I do believe that every one of us need to be investment-minded, that your giving isn't a tip. Your giving isn't just some kind of way to atone for your guilt, your giving should be an investment into the expansion in the kingdom of God, that the church becomes a lighthouse for the world in darkness, that the 85, 90,000 people that drive by every single day, as they see our campus being developed, as they see you out in the community, they begin to see a light in the middle of their dark situation. And so investment-minded is something I want to challenge you to do. Um, I want to challenge you, those of you that are part of North Valley, and this is your home, you start with, listen to me, if you're a, a college student, a high school student, I teach my kids to tithe. I teach my kids to tithe because I believe, I believe there is blessing in honoring God. Amen? You honor God, there's blessing in that. It doesn't always repay itself and financial exp, you know, exponentially, but it does oftentimes pay itself off in so many other ways and opens your heart up towards being more generous, making greater impact, and having more joy in life. The greatest joy in life is in giving. It's not in receiving. So that's why you as a parent, when you're giving gifts away, that's why when Oprah did that, I got a car for you, I got a car for you, she was happy to give those things away. And it also made her a lot of money because she got a lot of publicity out of it. But I'm just saying there's joy in giving. And so... I want to challenge you, uh, like I've challenged my own family and myself, is for those of you that call North Valley home, you give first to the general fund as an investment, that you're investing into the kingdom work at this church. And so uh, I want to challenge you, those of you who have not yet given financially, uh, help us in that you're strong. We're doing good as a church uh, overall. Uh, A lot of churches have shut their doors through this pandemic. Our church has actually expanded. Um, a lot of churches uh, lost, uh, basically, they, they struggled tremendously. Our church didn't. You guys did a great job. Our staff and our elders made the adjustments and the changes so that our church could move forward. But again, number one, I would challenge those of you that call North Valley home, have not yet given financially, to give to the general fund. Um, 
uh, before the uh, new year. Secondly, I would challenge those of you that have been giving to the general fund. I'm speaking to all of you right now. I would like to challenge you to join me and my family, as we already have, and give a one-time gift above and beyond your regular giving towards our campus development. Um, We have a multi-purpose building that is uh, opening up early. We were hoping it would be open by Christmas, uh, but you know and I know labor force is down, supplies costs are up. It's a challenging season for our country and every project on the planet right now. We do still plan on having that thing open early in the first quarter. Um, We've got the turf will be done tomorrow. And that's been possible because folks like you who give to the general fund and then you gave above and beyond to campus development with our Serve Like Jesus resource initiative or you joined our church recently and you gave financially to the campus development fund, you've made that progress possible. So let's celebrate you real quick. Thank you. So for all of us, here's what I am challenging you to do. Um, I want to thank those who've already been participating in our campus development fund. We still have a very strong need uh, to open up that building, finish out our projects, build a Gabion wall. And yes, we need to expand the entrance. I know it's really tight, especially you guys who have big trucks that drive into our campus. How many of you think that's a pretty tight spot to turn into? Yeah, it's pretty tight. So you can hit a cone in the name of Jesus when you come in there, and that's okay. Uh, We know it's tight, and we're going to do our best to widen it out a little bit and and then fix up that front area, build a a wall that would be safe for our uh, campus, and uh, we want to do that early in the first quarter. But that's not going to happen unless our church responds financially. And so I want to challenge all of you to give above and beyond your regular giving towards the campus development fund so that we can invest into the future. We are going to immediately help offset some of the growth that we have in North Valley kids and North Valley students, but it is a building towards the future more than anything. And so I would challenge you to do that. And uh, two families jumped on board and said, we want to give uh, a $20,000 gift. Another family said, we want to give a $20,000 gift towards the campus development fund to create a matching gift to incentivize you guys as a church so that we can finish all those projects out. So my job as a pastor is predominantly to preach and teach the Bible. That's my number one job. My second job is to lead our staff team. My third job is to develop this campus. I'm a developer too. And I have no problems working for our good father in heaven. I love dad's business. It's a good business. And it's, uh, we're going to serve people. And I have no problem anymore. I did one time when I was really young, challenging people to invest into something that makes an eternal difference. I remember sitting down with my dad one time and I said, dad, I don't know what to do. I'm going into the business uh, degree program at school and University of Arkansas. And he said, son, I'll tell you, it's real simple. You do this. I see it in you. You'll do great. You invest into people. That's the biggest eternal difference you could ever make. Invest into people. Whatever you do, if it's in the business world, creating services and products, use it to invest in the life of people for the good of people and for the glory of God. You'll do great. And that's what I've been doing. And many of you have joined that cause too. So let's, let's see this as an opportunity and a unique need. And let's make that 
40 grand turned into 80 grand so that we can continue to make an influence and a difference. We have ministries we're trying to launch uh, in January. I'm going to share with you about our first ongoing missionary support that we're providing uh, to help plant a church in Scotland. North Valley will help be planting a church in Scotland. Uh, we're going to be sharing with you about commissioning fathers that are going to be mentor fathers to fatherless kids in our community, which is a growing ministry. We're going to be sending kids to camp. We're going to be uh, moving forward in so many different directions, expanding our mi missions uh, to the Navajo Nation, to Mexico, and on and on and on. The best is yet to come. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. I pray that, Lord, two practical applications, since the light of life is in us as believers, might we be an inviting people. No matter where folks are at, if they're deeply religious and legalistic or they're irreligious and licentious, let's invite them. Uh, Father, for us all, might we be investment-minded and realize that what we do here and now matters and echoes in eternity. And money is really not that big a deal. I pray that we would not make money our God, but you would be our God and we would give generously. And Lord, expand your kingdom for future generations. In the mighty name of Jesus, thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.